You got your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. I don't know if you saw on the front of the bulletin, if you, sometimes we get those bulletins, we don't look real closely at them, but we get the bulletin, and you notice on the front there, big picture, Revelation, seven churches. I don't know how excited you are to be in the book of Revelation, but I actually am. I, I like the book of Revelation. Has anybody ever studied the book of Revelation, just by show of hands, anybody ever done a study of the whole book of Revelation? Oh, good, amen, all right, so... How many of you were scared to death when you started that study? How many of you, what in the world? Okay, that's a good, almost as many hands. How many of you, after you studied, are still scared to death? Okay, all right, that's great. I've been preaching and teaching from Revelation, and there's so much in this book, and it's so intimidating. It's a daunting task, so much so that some of the greatest theologians in the history of the church have simply dismissed the book and, and failed to recognize it as the authoritative uh, a book that it is. And, 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 and in so doing, they fail to recognize that what I think, that in the book of Revelation, you have one of the most beautiful and powerful pictures in all of Scripture in one book that covers the entirety of the sovereignty of God over all the history of the earth. And if you can, if you can find yourself to get through the book at once, amen. And if you can do it twice and three times anymore, and if you can stay and spend regular time in the book of Revelation, you're going to come away more confident in the glory of God, the sovereignty of God, and the victory of God over the world that we're living in. And that's a good thing. Amen? And so with that in mind, we're going to take the next three weeks, and, and we're actually just going to look at chapters 2 and 3. We're going to take the next three weeks, and we're going to look at the seven churches of Revelation. We're going to do a little bit different. Rather than look at a church each week and spend seven weeks, we're just going to do three weeks. And, and I'm going to explain to you kind of what we're, what we're going to do here. And, uh, and this morning's message is kind of an easier message. You can kind of rest a little bit. This morning's more of an informative message. It's instructional. We're going to look at some things and kind of help you understand where we're going next week and the following week because those two messages are important. So you don't have to worry, you know, that uh, if you're here this morning, you're worried about getting under a whole lot of conviction. Oh, it's going to be one of those messages. We're in Revelation. It's going to, the Holy Spirit, you can rest easy. Uh, that's, you probably won't get a lot of that this morning, uh, but that's for next week and the week after. Amen. Now, that doesn't mean you can suddenly remember you have somewhere to be next week. You have to be here. Amen? And, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit show us, show us just what it means to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Amen? Amen? Y'all with me? Okay. So I'm going to give you a lot of information. You follow along, and uh, you listen quickly, and I'll preach quickly, and we'll learn what God wants us to learn this morning. Uh, when you read the book of Revelation... And I say all this to say this, because we're, we're, we're moving in a direction. Um, I think there's a sign-up sheet on the kiosk. Coming up in November, we have the first major transitional session. It's the Church Memories Workshop. Now, we've had the two listening sessions. Those went great. Uh, appreciate learning about your church and your history and everything that, that God has done here. And we're moving into November. We're going to have that first uh, on Saturday morning. Uh, it's going to be a, a, a workshop about four, four to five hours. I need you to sign up for that and be here if you all can. And we're going to do a church memories workshop. And we're going to look at, at the sovereignty of God over the First Baptist Church of Mableton. Amen? And, and so it's going to be, it's going to be a, a, just a good time, and I need you to, to plan on that. And, and, and as we say that, and we, and we look at these two chapters, and we get into the, the church of Revelation, the reason we're looking at these seven churches is because that's going to lead us into that session. It's going to lead us into, into kind of understanding where First Baptist Church of Mableton fits in the, in the ages and in the sovereignty of God. 
where the church is concerned. So when you read the book of Revelation, there are a lot of challenges to address. Uh, it's a very picturesque book. Picturesque book. It has incredible and at times almost unbelievable pictures. Uh, and because of this, the early church did not take very long to debate and devise all sorts of methods for reading and understanding the book and its message. Depending on which book you pick up on the book of Revelation, which commentary you read, you're going to start right off and you're going to know that that author has a different way of looking at the book. And, and there are several different ways, really only about three key ways, but some of the ways that people go into the book of Revelation and some of the things they draw out of the book are, are just become almost beyond imagination. And, and you don't have to do that. You can study the book of Revelation just like any other book of the Bible, and it will make sense. And so some of the church's greatest theologians have debated the book and discounted, as I've already said, they've discounted it entirely. Some uh, don't, weren't even sure that it belongs in the canon of Scripture, that it belongs in the Bible. Um, and, and so there's four significant ways to view the book, four ways you can view this book. All right. Number one, it can be read as a purely historical book. And in this way, it seemed to have limited, if any, actual prophecy, and it was largely fulfilled within the first 100 years of the church. In other words, it's a historical book. It was written for the early church, and within 100 years uh, A.D., by 100 A.D., everything in the book of Revelation had basically been fulfilled. So it's a historical book, okay? All right, the second way, it can be read as purely figurative. In this way, the book contains little to no actual historical references, and it's representative of the war between good and evil, between God and Satan. Then the third way you can read the book is prophetically. In this way, the book is largely futuristic, so it didn't have any relevance to the early church, but to the church in the future, and especially us today, 2,000 years later, then the book has relevance. So it's, it's prophetical. So it's historical, it's figurative, and it's prophetical. But there's a fourth way. And I figured since some of the greatest theologians of the world and out the history of the church should come up with a different way of looking at the book of Revelation and, and looking at especially the seven churches, I figured I would just go ahead and throw, throw one of my ideas into the hat. Amen? And who knows, maybe one day the, the church will look back on me as, as being one of those great theologians. It's unlikely, but hey, you, you don't know if you don't take a shot, right? Amen? So here's the fourth thing that I want you to think of. There's a fourth way, and this is what I tend now. When I preach or teach from the book of Revelation, all right, it's a combination. <laughs> it's a combination of all three. But it requires, and, and Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 2.15, that we rightly divide the word of truth in order to properly learn its message and application. And when you take all three of these and tie them together, the fourth way that you look at the book is this. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. I'm going to give it to you again, but I'm, I'm going to give it to you now. The fourth way we look at the book of Revelation is as a book that ultimately simply displays the sovereignty of God and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I've learned. When you approach the book of Revelation from that standpoint, it's almost impossible to get a passage wrong. It's almost impossible not to understand it because you can see sovereignty and you can see the beauty and majesty in the work of Christ. Whether it's a historical picture or a figurative picture or a prophetical picture, you can see God working in the hearts of men. And especially as we're going to look in the next couple of weeks in these two chapters, God working in the hearts and life of his church. Does that all make sense? Amen? Does that make sense? So let's look at this quickly. All right. It's first historical again. All right. And what do we mean when we say it was historical? It was written to a very specific audience at a very specific time in history for a very specific purpose. 
And anytime you study the Bible, any book of the Bible, not just Revelation, but anytime you study a book of the Bible, you need to know that it was written to a specific people by a specific person for a specific reason. If you want to understand the Bible and what it means for us today, we have to know what it meant when it was written. And you, you, can't, you can't just jump right in and go, okay, let me read this passage and see what it means to me today. We try that, and there are all kinds of books on shelves in Christian bookstores that are coming up with the most insane of ideas and crazy heresies because they've taken the Bible out of its original historical context. The moment you do that, you're in danger of coming up with an idea or, or a teaching or a principle that is not actually found in Scripture, that it's man-made, it's fabricated by man. So you need to understand that anytime you study the Bible, it's first historical. And Revelation is especially important that we understand when it was written, why it was written, who it was written to. Secondly, Revelation is a prophetical book. Clearly it speaks of prophecy because repeatedly throughout the book, you're going to have visions of things that will come to pass. And you'll find that phrase, it came to pass. Or, in, or, 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 or I saw in a vision this coming to pass. Something that hadn't happened, but something that's going to happen. Okay? In other words... You know your tenses. We all graduated, hopefully, from, from, from school, or we have enough of an education to know the difference between the past, the present, and the future. Amen? And, uh, and so when somebody says that something's going to happen, that means it hasn't happened yet. Everybody got that? So in the Bible, when we're told that something's going to happen, when it was written, that means it hasn't happened yet. Now the trick becomes for us determining has it happened, because it's been 2,000 years since that letter was written. But there's keys to doing that, and there's ways to do that. And you have to be very careful. Because what's happening in the church today, while there are passages that clearly speak of future events, most of what was written in the book of Revelation was actually meant to encourage that young Christian church at the time that it was written, who was facing extreme persecution and opposition. And so whether those prophecies were immediate or distant future, the prophecies of Revelation prevent a, present a sovereign God who is executing a final plan to close out the sinful age of mankind as it is now known. So you got historical, you got prophetical, and then you have the figurative book. You have the figurative way of looking at the book. And prophecy is often very figurative. Uh, this, you look at any Old Testament book of prophecy. Whenever you read a prophecy, usually the image is there. It's hard for us to understand. And any dilemma that we have in interpreting and applying the teachings of the book of Revelation is usually at the figurative level. level. All right. What do I mean by that? Well, I have never seen a beast with seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns. <laughs> and yet in the book of Revelation, a beast is going to come out of the sea with seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns. Seven heads but ten horns. And then you have first argument, well, what kind of horn? Is it the kind of horn you blow or is it a horn on their head? Which means that some of the heads only have one horn. But at least three of the heads have two horns, or maybe one head just has four horns. I've never, I've never, I've, I've imagined a lot of things. I've seen a lot of movies. I've seen Godzilla. Amen. <laughs> and what they're describing here is pretty much something like that. And, and we know that that's not reality. We understand that that's fiction as we look at it. And even though we believe in dinosaurs and different things, when you read something like that, you have to ask the question, what are they talking about? Well, that's, it's, it's, it's figurative, it's allegorical, and you have to be careful when you look at the book of Revelation. So, okay, here we go. Historical, prophetical, figurative. Now, let's get to the churches. There's three ways you can look at the seven churches. I'm giving you a lot of numbers. I'm getting a lot of, y'all with me? Amen? This is great. Aren't you glad you got up and came to church on Sunday morning? Amen. 
Seven things, three things, four things. Okay. Three ways to look at the church. Four ways to look at the book of Revelation. All right. Three ways to look at the church. And I'm going to tie my fourth one in there. But there's three ways. When you read about these seven churches in chapters two and chapter, there's three ways we can look at them. Number one. All right. They are dispensational representatives of seven ages of church history. What in the world does that mean? For a long time, theologians have believed that when you look at the churches in order, that you're actually walking through seven ages of church history, and, and which leads all the way up to the return of Christ. Meaning when you get to the seventh church, that's the last age we're living in before Jesus comes back. Everybody, does that make sense? Okay, so in 2,000 years, we've gone through seven ages, and we're just now waiting for the return of Christ. The second way of looking at Revelation, or the church's Revelation, is that they're literal historical churches. These were churches that existed in the day when the book was written, seven churches, each having a name, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, each church actually existing in Asia Minor. They were literal churches that existed during the time. And then the third way is that each of those churches are representative of seven different types of churches at any given time in church history. What in the world does all that mean, Brother Ian? Well, let me see if I can break it down for us. The first view, the dispensational view, is still held by, most, by some theologians today, but it's largely been discredited. It's very hard to hold the dispensational view for a lot of reasons. Because when you look at the seven churches and the way they're presented, they don't line up with seven ages of church history. And, and not only that, we have the arrogance of assuming that we're living in a certain age. And, and so when you look at that, there are some theologians who still present this idea of ages, seven ages. But when you look at that view, uh, it, it, you lose the ability to honestly look at what age we're in. Um, and most serious students of scripture and most theologians today don't recognize that particular viewpoint. The ones that we cling to today are number two and number three, literal historical churches and representative churches. So um, let's see if we can get through this quickly this morning. All right. The danger is this. Uh, let me see if I'm jumping ahead of myself. Okay. Three, three ways of viewing the church, dispensational, literal churches, and then number three, representative churches. So. What do we learn from these churches? What do we learn from the three views? I'm going to give us all this, and we're going to look at the seven ages and the seven churches very quickly. Very quickly. All right. Number one, the idea of the church is representing ages leading up to Christ's return. When you look at the seven churches of Revelation, if you want to see them as ages, that's fine. But, the only, but rather than try and pinpoint one particular age with one particular church, what we need to look at and realize is that every church, no matter what age that church is in, that church is facing spiritual warfare of some kind. There's no church of Jesus Christ that is ever immune from the attacks of Satan. And even the seventh church, which we're going to look at next when we look at the churches next week, and the church that most of us, a lot of us are familiar with, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, and songs have been written about. Even that church, when we're going to look at that, and it's going to look like a church that's not under attack by Satan, it's actually the most attacked church by Satan. That's why it became the church that it was. And we'll look at that next week. When you look and you think about the ages, when you think about the fact that 2,000 years have passed, since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, for 2,000 years, the church and this world have been at war with each other. 
And there have been days and there have been seasons and there have been ages when the church was popular and there have been ages when the church was not so popular. Now, you figure out where we are right now. Where do you think? Uh, is the church popular or not? And depending on who you ask, some are going to say, oh, we're doing fine. Other people are going to know we're not doing fine. You look at depending on what country you look at. There are some countries right now where they absolutely love the church and they want the church to do what God has put her there to do because right now it benefits that nation and they're behind the church. There are other nations right now that see the church as a threat, as an opposition, and so they're resisting the church. And you have to ask yourself the question, you know, what age exactly are we living in? You can't pinpoint that. If you hold that viewpoint, the problem is, what age are we living in? And the arrogance of assuming that we're living, as many people say today, we're living in the Laodicean age, that we're all lukewarm, that we're all worthless, is, 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 is absolutely insanity. Because I don't know about you, I may not be perfect, but I love God more every day. And, and, and I'm more excited about God every day. And the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more on fire I get for him. And, and I have days when I get cold, and I have days when I'm not all I need to be. But I'm going to tell you, I've been in churches, and I've preached in churches, and I've seen churches, even the worst of churches, but they're still churches. There are people there who are trying to be what God wants them to be. And I've been in churches that said they're the best of churches. And they have their problems, whether they want to admit it or not. But what I've seen when I look at the world today is the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well. And we are not done with the work that God has called us to do. And so when you think about this age of dispensation, then the only thing I want you to get from that viewpoint, the only thing I want you to take away when you look at those ages, when those men try and say that the history of the church is pictured in seven ages, they're picturing seven phases or seven periods of warfare that the church of Jesus Christ will go through until he returns. Amen. And by the way, if you do present them in order and you get all the way to the seventh church, I think that the ages are cyclical, which means you just start back over at age one. So if a church does get to the seventh age, then it goes back to the first age and it repeats the process, and that's, and that's ongoing until Jesus comes back. We're going to be at war in this world. One author said this, the presence of evil within the church is never a matter to be taken lightly. And remember that when the book of Revelation was written, the church was in mortal combat with the imperial Roman power. At the time the book of Revelation was written, they were facing intense persecution, and the Roman emperors, Nero and others, and Domitian had already given orders to hunt down and kill Christians. That's what Paul did. Paul was originally one who hunted down and gave the order to have Christians put to death. And the Roman Empire tried to stamp out Christianity, and they fled to the ends of the earth, taking the gospel with them, and they survived that intense period of persecution. But at the time, the Roman authority and the Roman government saw the church as a threat and wanted to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. But 2,000 years later, we're still here, and the Roman government is gone. You can count on this, beloved. Any nation that sets itself up against the church of Jesus Christ will find one day that while the church remains, the nation remains no longer. So the worst thing a nation can do, the worst thing a nation can do is target the church of Jesus Christ. Because God will reach a point when he says, I no longer need that nation. And he will replace it with something else. And history's proven that time and time again. Amen? Now, the second way we look at these churches Literal churches. When we think about literal churches, 
This shows the unity of the global church at any time. The letters were written and compiled in one book to seven different churches to show that the body of Christ never operates in isolation. Where one church is being persecuted... Another is experiencing great freedom in spreading the message of the gospel and the kingdom of God. In other words, when you think about them, these were seven literal churches, and this is the view I believe. They were written to seven literal churches, but those churches represent us. And the lesson we learn from those churches is who Christ is and what he's doing for us. That's the fourth view. But when you look at these seven churches, he writes to Ephesus, and then he writes to uh, uh, Smyrna, and he writes to Pergamos, and Thyatira, and to Laodice. He writes to these seven churches. As these churches are written, they're put in one book so that when whoever gets the book is reading the letter written to the other churches as well. Does that make sense? See, the church at Laodicea knows what God said to the church at Ephesus. The church at Smyrna knows what God said to the church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia knows what God says to the church at Thyatira. God is writing in Revelation to seven different churches, but he's showing those churches that they are not alone. He is showing those churches that they are not alone. Everything that God wants to do here at First Baptist Church of Mableton, he wants to do it as part of his plan and his sovereignty over all of his churches, the other churches in Paulding County and Cobb County and Atlanta and Georgia and the United States to the ends of the earth. First Baptist Church of Mableton is a church that God sees as much as he sees any one of the thousands of other churches that are gathering for worship on this Sunday morning right now around the world. You and I are part of something bigger than the handful we see when we look around the room this morning. Amen? When you understand that God is writing to seven, when the, this letter is written and he's addressing these seven churches and he's putting them, and, and most of your scholars who've written on this, and Dr. Adrian Rogers, uh, Billy Graham, both wrote commentaries on Revelation, and they both said almost the same thing, that when, when a church reads or when a Christian reads the book of Revelation, he needs to be reminded of the fact that no matter how big or small that Christian thinks he is, God sees him and God is aware of exactly who you are and exactly what you're going through and what your church is going through. And we are part of a family that is bigger than we see when we just sit and look around the room this morning. And so he wrote to these churches to remind them that they're a part of something bigger. I've pastored small churches, small churches. When I, I left one church down in South Georgia, and we came up here, and there was a church that asked me to come preach for them because they didn't have a pastor. And I went down there one Sunday. There was like 10 people in the church. I went down, I preached for them, and they said, uh, hey, will you come back next Sunday? I said, sure. I went back next Sunday. They said, hey, will you come back next Sunday? I saw a trend developing. And they finally said, hey, will you just stick around? And, and I said, I'll stick around for you, and I'll preach. For you. That was the first, one of the first times I said, okay, I'll, I'll preach for you until you find another pastor. And and that little church was struggling. We'd have, on a high day, we'd have 20 in the worship service. On a low day, there'd be eight, nine, ten of us. And we just, we just preached the word. We sang together. We worshiped together. We celebrated together. Little church out in the middle of the country. And one of the church members came up to me and said, you know, do we need a new pastor? Is it time to close the doors? What should we do? And this is what I told him. I said, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I know that in the sovereignty of God, there comes a time and a place when a church has to close its doors. But I know if it were me, and I still had a calling and an opportunity to minister in a community, <coughs> I know that if it were up to me, 
I wouldn't close the church doors without putting up a pretty big fight. That if it were up to me, and I knew there was still a need in that community, and, and, and the way that I could meet that need was in this church, and by, and, by, and by fighting to keep this congregation going, that's what I would do. Until I knew that God, that God was the one that was closing the doors. I wouldn't turn off a light. I wouldn't lock a door. I wouldn't quit. I wouldn't give up. And it doesn't matter. And, 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 and churches, have, you've seen churches that, that hit, hit huge. I know churches that started with 20. They built major, built multi-million dollar facilities. There was a church about 10 years ago in Atlanta, massive multi-million dollar facility, multi-thousand member church that eventually went bankrupt, sold the property. The church buildings have been transformed into an office complex. And that church, you wouldn't even know there was ever a church there. And we get so, oh man, we're running 5,000 and don't get excited. Because you can be running 5,000 today and you can be running zero tomorrow because God is sovereign over his churches. But listen to this. We're running five. We're just running five. We're just running five. You're running five. And where two or three. So if you're running five, you got two more than Jesus even said. Amen. We, we get discouraged by the wrong things, and we get encouraged by the wrong things. Numbers matter. But God doesn't care as much about the numbers as he cares about what's in our heart and our willingness to serve him. Even when everybody else says, why are you still trying? When you can answer that question and say, I'm still trying because Jesus is still alive, God's still on the throne, and I still have a work to do. When you can answer that question that way, you're moving in the right direction. Amen? And so, they're literal churches. And they weren't isolated from other churches. And then number three, representative churches shows that these were churches that any church in history could identify with. So what I mean is not only is this church, First Baptist Church in Ableton, a part of larger churches, of all the different types of churches that are represented, but at any given time, a church is going to identify with one or more of those seven churches, and usually just one. And so the question we have to ask, and this is the challenge, this is the challenge for a church today when we read the book of Revelation. Are we worthy of commendation, condemnation, or both? Because when God wrote to the seven churches here in Revelation, he commended the church and he rebuked the church. And in some instances, he only commended, and in one instance, he only rebuked. And so every church has to ask the question, where are we with God right now? And that brings me to the fourth thing. The churches as a sovereign revelation of Christ. And we're going to get to that in two weeks. So now, seven, here we go. This is, that was all introduction. Amen. Seven things I'm going to give you now. We're going to move quickly, I promise. Amen. I want to look at the seven churches, and I want to look at them very quickly. I'm going to preach quickly. You listen quickly. We'll let the Holy Spirit speak, and we'll be done for the day. Amen. Turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. If you're there, look at verse 2. Revelation chapter 2. 
We're going to look at the seven ages. We're going to look at the seven ages. Next week, we're going to look at the seven, the seven unifying churches and the individual churches. And then in, in two weeks, we're going to look at the Christ who is sovereign over the churches and what that means from each of the seven churches. But I want to talk about the ages. The first church we look at in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 2, is the church at Ephesus. And in verse 2, he says, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patience, and you cannot bear them which are evil... And you have tried them which say they are apostles, but they are not, and you have found them liars. So I'm going to give you the seven ages real quick, and then we're going to look at them. The first age is the apostolic age, and that's the church at Ephesus. Then you have the persecuted church age, that's the church at Smyrna. You have the indulged church, that's the church at Pergamos. You have the pagan church at Thyatira. You have the dead church of Sardis. You have the church that Jesus loved at Philadelphia, and then you have the apostate church in Laodicea. So the very first church we look at is the apostolic church, the church at Ephesus. This was the new church, the young church. This is like the fledgling church. This is the early Christianity. This is where the church is excited about the word of God, and they're walking in the doctrine of the apostles. So in verse 2 he says, you have tried them who say they are apostles, but in fact they are not. In other words, this church is a church whose first and greatest commitment is to knowing the teachings of Scripture as taught by the men that God appointed to lead his church. He said, we've tried them. You've tried them to know whether or not they're liars. In other words, within the first 100 years of Christianity, the devil's already trying to bring liars and deceivers into the church. But the early church was aware of it, and they began to question them. And they would find out who was real and who wasn't, and they would put them out of the church. So, no, that's not Bible. That's not, his, that's not right. That's not the apostle. That's not what Jesus taught. That is not correct. And they knew it, and they identified it. So ask yourself, in the age we're living in today, does the church have the ability to identify and still tell the difference between what the Bible teaches and what we think or somebody says the Bible teaches? See, the apostles' doctrine, to study the word of God and know that it's God who says it and not man, that's the only thing that's going to matter. It doesn't matter what preacher, it doesn't matter what, what, how young, how old, what kind of degrees he has, doesn't matter the color of his skin, his background, doesn't matter whoever stands behind a pulpit and claims to represent God, you can determine whether or not he is in fact serving God by whether or not he is preaching and teaching the truths found in the scriptures. But you won't know that, and I won't know that, unless we open the Bibles and look for ourselves. And the early church did that. The, the apostolic church is the church, and if you want to look at it as the age, the first church, and the, they questioned everything. They evaluated theology. They wanted to know, is this really from God? And we're living in today now more than ever. We need to ask the question, is this really from God? And so the first church is the apostolic church, the church at Ephesus. The second church is the church at Smyrna, which is known as the persecuted church. Look at verse 9 and verse 10. He writes to the church at Smyrna, and he says, I know your works, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews, and they are not, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you will have tribulation for ten days. <laughs> be faithful unto death. And I will give thee a crown of life. And so the church at Smyrna represents the persecuted church. Or the church, and, and, and within the first 
150 to 100 to 200 years of church history, there was intense persecution in the early church. And I got news for you, the church is still being persecuted today. We think we're being persecuted in America. We think we're being persecuted. Somebody tells us to stop talking about Jesus. There are countries where if you even think about mentioning the name of Jesus, it could be the last day you draw breath. The church has always been and is always going to be persecuted by a wicked and godless world that wants nothing to do with God, his word, his Christ, and his truth. If you as a church begin to make a commitment, and even more than that, if you as an individual Christian begin to make a commitment that you're going to live by the principles of the word of God, count on it. This is what Paul said when he wrote to Timothy. Paul said that everyone, everyone, everyone who strives to live godly, to live a godly life, everyone who seeks to live the godly life will suffer persecution as a Christian. You want to know why some of us honestly aren't persecuted? Because when you look at our lives, we're not as godly as we need to be. You want to know why some churches aren't, nobody messes with those churches? It's because they look and they, they don't see a remnant of godliness. And as we go through these church ages and as we look at these churches, the danger of a church is reaching the point, the danger of a church reaching the point where the devil, who's engaged in spiritual warfare with Almighty God, no longer sees that church or the individual Christians in that church as a threat. You ought to, I say that, you're not going to like this. I don't like it. <laughs> but as Christians, if we really want to know that we're serving God the way that we ought to be serving him, then we ought to pray that God would confirm that we're living for him the way that we want to be living for him by letting us go through persecution. Show me that I'm doing it right, God. Where, show me, let the persecution come to me. Let me live so, so committed to you that I become a target. Are you bold enough to pray that prayer? Uh, there's days when I'm not. Lord, I, I like preaching. I like preaching to the choir. Amen. I like preaching when it's comfortable. I love preaching. Everybody says amen. I don't like preaching knowing that afterwards there's going to be somebody who, who may want to punch me or somebody who may want to, uh, I live in a country where if I try to talk about Jesus, somebody may want to take my life. I, I like the idea of being able to preach the gospel and, and, and go home and, and sit down and, and watch a football game or, 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 or go home and, and go out and have a nice meal and know that, man, we had a great service today and it was wonderful. I, I like that. But I'm also humbled and challenged by the fact that too much of that could mean that I'm leaning towards that place where my life and my ministry is no longer has the power that God wants it to have. And that's the same for a church, and that's the same for the members sitting in the pew as well. The persecuted church. Number three, the indulged church. The church at Pergamos. Look at verse 13 and 14. I know your works. I know where you dwell. Even where Satan's seat is. And you hold my name, and you haven't denied my faith. Even the days where Antipas, the mar my martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have there those that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. 
The indulged church is a church that now that has gone through persecution, but in the midst of that persecution, has begun to compromise, to try and make their life easier. And rather than now still standing and fighting for the apostles' doctrine the way that the church at Ephesus did, they've now reached the point where they've allowed false doctrine to come into the church and they've begun to accept it. And because of that, the persecution softens. Because they're no longer fully committed to God and they're going to that process where the devil and the world no longer sees that church as a threat. See, this church is a church where God says, I have something. You know me. You know my name. You're dwelling right in the heart. You are not in an easy spot, by the way. This church is not. They said, you, are, you dwell in the very seat of Satan. Whatever that means. And there are a hundred different ways for a hundred different theo- theologians to answer that verse. But all of us agree that wherever they were, the, the central power and authority and the weight of Satan was hitting this church in a way that no other church knew. And it was so overwhelming that they began to cave and compromise. And they began to allow worldly ideas to come into the church. And they became the indulged church. Well, then you look at verse 20, and this is the fourth church, the church at Thyatira, which no longer now are we the apostolic church or the persecuted church or the indulged church, but now you actually have the pagan church. In verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you, because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So this church is a far cry from the apostolic church. That first church, the apostolic church, the church at Ephesus says, we're going to look, we're going to determine if you're teaching the word of God, we're going to get you. You're not allowed in the church. They went through persecution, they made a compromise with the world, they allowed false teachings to come into the world, and now in this church, there is a woman leading the church who is teaching all kinds of heresy and false doctrine. doesn't have anything to do with the fact that she's a woman. Take that off the table. Boy, their church, oh, that's women preachers. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that she's a woman. It has to do with what she's teaching. Amen? So it's not about Jezebel. It's not Jezebel. It's because she's teaching something contrary to the word of God. This church has now become a pagan church. And they're eating things, sacrificed on idols. They're living in all kinds of sin and wickedness. He says, I gave her a chance to repent, and she repented not. And I will judge her, and that's the rest of that chapter. But then look at verse, now jump down to chapter 3 and look at verse 1 and verse 2. So unto the church of Sardis write this. These things says he that has the seven spirits. I know your works, that you have a name, that you live, and you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. This church is referred to as the dead church. And if a church goes through a process long enough, of losing her allegiance to the word of God, losing her allegiance to Christ, losing her allegiance to Almighty God and his principles and his teachings, it's just a matter of time before that church dies. But even then, do you see what God says here? There's still a remnant. There's still a a seed there. And God is saying to them, God is saying to them, I know who you are. Be watchful. Strengthen the things which are you. have a name. You look like you're alive, but you're dead. And there's just enough of you left there. Just enough of you left there that you still have hope. You want to know when, you know, when God's done with the church? I'll tell you when God's done with the church, when, when there's nobody left in the church. When everybody's gone, you look at a church that's empty. I drive past churches all the time, and especially in South Georgia and up in the mountains. 
I drive past churches. They were old churches. They're, they're just buildings. They're just they're closed. They're, they're falling down. They, you could, they used to be all these small churches, and they're no longer churches anymore. Some of them went on and planted and got new buildings. Others just churches that have closed their door. You want to know when God's done with the church? The lights will be off. The doors will be closed. There will be nobody's there. But as I said before, if there's just one person left, two, three, four, five, just a handful, it doesn't matter how discouraging. And, 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 and again, I don't think that's the case here. Not what I'm saying this morning. But I'm telling you, because we're all part of the larger church of Jesus Christ this morning, beloved, there are churches in this community, there are churches close to us that are at that point. They are struggling. And it may be, it may be that one of the things God wants to do in this church is let this church rise up to become the church that ministers to those churches. One of the things that breaks my heart about Christianity and the way we do church in North America today, not in the other countries, in the country, other countries I've been to, I don't see this. I see it in North America. Is we build a church, we get a building, we fill it up, we get people in it, and that church becomes kind of big, and it kind of becomes the church in the community, and that church suddenly forgets all about all the other small churches in the community. And they do activities, and they have programs for their people and their church, and they try to isolate themselves from the church of God. And you have these big churches that have an opportunity to be a blessing and a ministry to smaller churches around them, but instead of doing that, they're, they're, they're securing themselves. And resting in that. And, and I see this entirely too much in the church of North America today. And so you have the dead church. But then look at chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. The church at Philadelphia. Behold, I have set before you an open door. And no man can shut it. For you have a little strength. And you've kept my word. And you have not denied my name. Again. If you're looking at these churches as literal ages, you have a problem. And the problem is this. Most people, most people, if, we, if, we, if you ask us which church are you, we're going to go, we're the good church. We're the church that loves everybody. We're doing it right. And, and, but, and if you look at an age, nobody wants to admit that we're in this age. And even the theologians who say that we're in the last age, seventh church, which we're going to get to in a minute, I'm offended by that. I'm offended by those who suggest and say, and, and it's bad Bible, Bible teaching and bad hermeneutics. It's bad Bible study to say that we're living in a day when the church is lukewarm or dead. When sandwiched right in the middle of that, you have this church that loves people and loves God. And God says, I've set before you an open door. Can I say to you that we're living in a day where the mission's opportunity, the mission's opportunities of the church of Jesus Christ today are greater than they've ever been? You can go anywhere in this world you want to go. Oh, by the way, you just have to die to yourself before you go. There is nowhere in this world you can't go. You come to me and say, Pastor, and I want to take a mission trip. I don't know where to start. I'll have you on a mission trip within 12 months. Amen. There's nothing. I'm offended by the teaching that says that, we're, that as we get closer to the end, and, and Jesus said in the last days, in the last days, perilous times would come. But he didn't say, and he said it would be so significant that even the elect would be tempted to fall away, that there's gonna, it's going to be so overwhelming, it's going to be so hard. But Jesus never said that in the last days the church would cease to exist. In fact, in the last days when I study the Bible, the church of Jesus Christ, the true believers, those of us who have been born again, those of us who know the word of God, we're going to be more alive than we've ever been in the midst of the worst persecution the world has ever known. 
If you belong to God, discouragement should not mark you, but encouragement, victory should mark you. If you're truly a child of God and you're listening to the word of the devil, if you're listening to society and culture, put that stuff out of your mind this morning and know this morning that you are a part of the bride of Christ. That you are a child of God, and he has a great and mighty work that he still wants to do in your life and in the life of this church. And you do not give up without a fight. And do not let the devil tell you that you are done. I've set before you an open door. That scares me more than the persecution. I mean, I, I just, I couldn't imagine standing before God one day and go, well, I didn't know what to do. What do you mean you didn't know there were a hundred open doors in front of you? Pick one. Beloved, you and I are only limited. You and I are only limited by what we think God can do. Did you catch that? You and I aren't limited by what God can do. We're only limited by what we think God can or cannot do. If you got that, say Amen. Because I'm trying to finish. I don't want to preach for another hour. i gotta, I got to make sure you got that. My weaknesses, my failures are the result directly, directly, directly of not trusting God the way that he wants me to. And that's true of any child of God. And so the last church is the apostate church. It's the Laodicean church. By the way, the Philadelphia church, he had no condemnation for that church, but the Laodicean church, he has no commendation. He has nothing bad to say about the church at Philadelphia, but nothing good to say about the church at Laodicea. Look at verse 15. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would rather that you were cold or hot. But you're the lukewarm church. It says, because of this, I will spew you out of my mouth. We're going to look a little bit more what that means next week. Beloved... When you look at a church, and, and, this is, and I say all that, so I'm going to walk through this quickly and we'll be done. This is the seven cycles or the seven ages that a church or a, or a series of churches can go through. We start by being on fire with the word. Persecution comes. We begin to waver on our commitment to the word so that we become an indulged church and we accept certain things in order to ease the persecution, then we begin to accept all kinds of false doctrines so that we don't even look like a church, we look more like a pagan church, to the point that then we're standing and we're a church and we say we're alive but we're actually dead, to the point then that God has to raise up a group out of that and open a door of service for them, and then those who go through the door experience the victory of God, but the others who are scared stand like the church at Laodicea. We're not hot. We're not cold. We just don't know what to do, or we don't want to do. I think the worst thing that can happen to a church or an individual Christian is when we reach the point where we just, not that we don't know what to do, but we don't think we can do anything anymore. And then the worst possible thing is when we don't think we can do anything more and we become comfortable with that. I'm too old. I'm too young. I don't have this. I don't have that. Moses made excuses. Amen. The disciples, everybody. You read the Bible, all these men made excuses. And what did God do after they made their excuses? He used them and did great and mighty things. And we come to the point where we argue with God about who he says we are Stop it. 
Stop it. That's my preaching for this morning. Stop it. When God tells you who you are and you, and you want to argue with him, stop it. You're a child of God. You're a child of the king. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We are co-workers with God in his kingdom and laborers of God. And there's nothing greater, no privilege, no, nothing more wonderful and honorable than being able to serve God. The danger of holding this view with these, these, these ages, and if you hold them, it's the way some theologians do. Again, we, we say we're living in the good age. Everybody else is in the bad age. I want you to understand this. It is very easy, and the devil is going to go to war with any Christian or any church. And if we give in, and we begin to see sort of this fatalistic view of history, well, we're just headed towards a time where the church is just going to slowly die off until Jesus comes back. Woe is me. It's too easy to lose evangelistic zeal, spiritual passion, and sacrificial commitment. These letters were written to seven literal churches in Asia Minor, and they represent all churches existing at that time as well as any time in history. And all seven of these churches had one thing ultimately in common, whether you take the literal church or the age of the church, they all had one thing in common. These churches were all in the middle of a war between God and Satan, and every church had a choice to make. And that choice determined how much God was able to use that church. That hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Amen? Now, next week, we're going to talk about the choices they made and how they made them. We're going to move through those seven churches. But I want you to get excited about this. I, I, this was tough this morning. I didn't think it was going to be the hard this morning. This was hard on me. Next Sunday, it'll be a little tougher. But I want you to hang in there for two weeks. You got to hang in there. Next week, will be a little tough. But, but in two weeks, all right? In two weeks, we're going to look at seven pictures of Jesus. We're going to look at seven pictures of Jesus. And then, b- beloved... All bets are off. Whereas we're going to see who, we're going to see what the Bible says about our Savior, our God, our King, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? But we have to see what stands in the way of seeing Him the way that He wants us to see Him. I'm going to say that one more time before I pray. We have to see what stands in the way of us seeing Him the way that He wants us to see Him. So I have to preach next Sunday before I can preach in two weeks. Amen? Unless you guys just want to hang around here for another couple hours. That's the way it, that's the way it works. Amen? <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. What did God speak to you about this morning? I hope you didn't hear me too much this morning. What did God speak to you about? Did, did, are you encouraged? Is the Holy Spirit encouraging you? Don't let him do that right now. Did you come to church this morning discouraged? Be encouraged. Did you come to church this morning worn out and wearied? Let, let, let the Holy Spirit give you strength. You and I are here this morning. We're still drawing breath. And for some of us, that breath might be a little more feeble than others, but you are still drawing breath, which means God is not done with you. He is not done with me. He is not done with this church. Be encouraged. And let him have his way in your life. And do not leave this morning without knowing.
that you know God, that you've trusted in Christ. Do not leave this morning without being encouraged and excited. And give to God whatever you need to give to him. And my prayer for you is that you would pray this this morning. Just where you are, quietly on your own, just pray something like this. God, what I've heard this morning and what I'll hear next week, use that to help me see you the way that I need to see you to be able to serve you and enjoy you and love you the way that you want me to. Put that in any words, any way you need to do it. But ask God to show you what it is that he needs you to see before you can see him the way that he wants you to see him. Father, I'm so thankful that every day I learn more about how awesome you are and I'm reminded of how frail I am. And in the midst of discouragement and in the midst of a world that is hostile and and father not even not even that hostile here not in Georgia not we don't even we can't even begin I can't even begin to imagine what other Christians are facing but God just as I look at the world and I read the news and I hear and I see and the language and the hatred and the anger and the warfare and I realize it's all because this world is not trusting in the one who made it that we as human beings are not surrendering to the God of redemption and grace and mercy, that we are not surrendering to the love of Christ. And Father, I pray that you would just take, take the message that you gave these seven churches and use it in our hearts and lives in these coming weeks to show us Christ in a way we've never seen him before. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. If you need to come, you come. Whatever God's laid on your heart this morning. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, 
mercies for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Heard has leaped tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling a sinner, come home. Amen. Amen. As you leave today, I want you to be encouraged that you're a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a blessed afternoon. Enjoy time with your families, fellowship, whatever you got going on. And let's go this week and let's show the world what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Amen. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Help us to go.